0: It's great to be with you this morning, and especially those of you who are here and for those of you who are watching online on YouTube. So let me pray for us, and then we begin. Uh. Oh Lord God, would your spirit here be among us, leading us, guiding us, teaching us. And Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. We pray this through your son's name. Amen. (coughs) Now, there was a missionary who went to a reservation to preach the gospel to the American Native Indians, but he was not even sure of his own conversion. He had went there to preach the gospel, but he was not even sure of his own conversion. And in this diary, he wrote this. I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Who, what is he that will deliver me from this evil heart of mischief? I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well and believe in myself while no danger is near but let danger look me in the face, and my spirit is troubled. Nor can I say, to die is gain. He had no peace of God, for he was weighed down by the guilt and shame of a sin. Moreover, he had to leave America hurriedly because there was a warrant for his arrest. He felt that he was a failure as a Christian. He felt that he was a phony Christian. Now there might be some of you who are also weighed down by guilt, weighed down by the guilt and shame of your sin. Even though you had made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ months, years ago, you find that instead of feeling holier, you're beginning to feel more sinful. The more you learn about the Christian way, the more you realize that you can't live it. Before long, you wonder if you are a Christian. I mean, how can a Christian struggle so much with malice, anger, with fear, with selfishness, with deceit, and lust? You feel that you are a phony Christian. But, but if you are struggling with the guilt and shame in your life, Psalm, 30, Psalm 130 tells us here. It tells us here to hope in the Lord, for he will redeem us from all our sins. To hope in the Lord, for he will redeem us from all our sins. And there are four movements in this life of faith, four movements in this life of faith as we grapple with the sin in our lives. And here it says that faith cries for mercy in the first two verses here. Faith affirms God's goodness in the next two verses in verses three to four. Faith waits for the Lord in verses 5 to 6. And faith encourages others to hope in verses 7 to 8. And you see that there's a movement in the Psalms. There's a movement. It moves from the depths to the heights. It moves from the dark night of the soul where we cry for mercy to the joy in the morning where we encourage others to hope in the Lord. And so we're going to move to these four movements here. And let's begin with the first movement here, where it says, in terms of faith cries for mercy, in verses one to two faith cries for mercy. It begins here with the psalm here Out of the depths I cry for you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. In these two verses, the psalmist cries out to God for help in his distress. This language out of the depths here, the depths here represent the deep waters of the sea. The psalmist here feels as though he's drowning. He's gasping, he's grasping for air. He's looking for a firm place to stand, but he can't stand. You all remember that in, the, in this week, there was the floods here, and you all sort of heard about the floods in China, and so there were pictures of passengers who were trapped in the underground subway, in the subway car itself, and the water was coming up to their shoulder level. Many of them, some of them thought that they might not make it. Some of them thought that this was going to be their last. And the psalmist here probably also feels something similar, if not worse. He feels as though he's drowning. Now, some of us are naturally drawn to water. I mean, the Pastor Higgins kids, right? They just fiercely dive into the water swimming pool here. But the imagery of drowning is a terrifying picture to some. And especially for the ancient Israelites because they are not a seafaring nation. Most of them live in the highlands of the Judean mountains or the Sumerian mountains, far from the Mediterranean Sea. Thus, the sea and the depths of the ocean were particularly terrifying. They were often used as metaphors of distress, of trouble, and adversity here. But in his distress, he cries out to God for mercy. He cries out to God for help. What is the cause of his distress? What is the cause of the distress? From the rest of the psalm, and especially in verse 3, we know that he is in distress because of sin. Oh, he's in distress because of sin, but not from the sin of wicked people, but rather because of his own sin. And the weight of his own sin crushes him crushes him down. And so the psalmist's anguish over the sin arises because he knows that he's going to meet God in the temple. Remember the psalm of the song of ascents are the songs of worship as the worshipers go up to meet God in the temple. And this psalm then speaks of the experience of one who is going to encounter God in the temple of Jerusalem. And as he approaches the temple, he recognizes the depth of his sin in comparison to the holiness of God. He recognizes that the central impediment towards his worship of God is sin, and he cries out to God for mercy. What do we make of such anguish? Is it a good thing? Is it appropriate for the Christians? What do we make of it? Sensitivity concerning sin is a good thing, for it means that we take sin seriously. Even the Apostle Paul recognized the depth of his sin, for in 1 Timothy 1, he considers himself to be the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners. If, on the flip side, we have no care about sin, it means then that we have no care about the holiness of God, for sin is contrary to God. In fact, the Puritan theologian here, John Owen, made this statement. The, John Owen said that he that hath slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. So that having sensitivity towards sin here is a good thing. But, 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 like the psalmist of 130, this consciousness of sin must lead us to come to God and to plead for mercy. If the consciousness of sin does not lead us to a deeper awareness of the mercy of god but prompts us to self-medicate our guilt and shame by thinking that we just have to try harder we just have to work harder then it becomes maladaptive it becomes destructive so and the consciousness of sin will only drive us to despair so the first movement in this life of faith as we grapple with sin in our lives is to admit our sinfulness and to cry out to God for mercy. It is to come to God and to cry out for mercy, rather than thinking that we can make it on our own. So that's the first movement in this life of faith. Faith cries out for mercy. The second movement here is then given in the next two verses, where faith affirms God's goodness. Faith affirms God's goodness here and it's seen in verses 3-4. If you, O Lord, here should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And so these two verses present the reality of the situation between humanity and God. First, it addresses humanity's sinfulness. If God should mark iniquities, if God should keep a record of the sin and wrong that we have done. No one would be able to stand. That means no one would be able to pass before God's judgment. God's standard of holiness is so high that even the best of humanity, the most righteous person would not be able to pass the test. But in the midst of this reality here, In the midst of this reality, we have a very important theological word. A very important theological word. And the word is, but. But, but. No one can stand before God because of his sin. Yet Psalm 130 says, but with you, there is forgiveness. And that is such wonderful news. You know, the prophet Nahum tells us that no one can stand before God's indignation. No one can endure the heat of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Yet Psalm 130 says, But with you there is forgiveness. The prophet Malachi tells us that no one can endure the day of his coming. No one can stand when he appears, for he is a refiner's fire. Yet Psalm 130 says, But with you there is forgiveness. With you, there's forgiveness. Why does God forgive? Why does God forgive? Is it because of the good works that we've done? Is it because we are good? No. God forgives because it is the nature of God to forgive. God forgives because it is the character of God to forgive. In Exodus 34, when God was explaining the significance of his name to Moses. This is what he says here, you know, that the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, forgiving rebellion, forgiving sin. Three different words used to encompass all kinds of wrong, misdeed, and sin. And all these three different words are used here to indicate that God is willing to forgive all kinds of sin. God is willing to forgive all kinds of sinners. And it is his nature to do so. God does not reluctantly forgive sins. Rather, it is his nature to do so. And he delights to do so. And forgiveness is at the very heart of God's character. It is the very heart of God's forgiveness. But why does God forgive? Why does God forgive? And the Psalm here tells us this. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's odd. It seems odd. I mean, I would like to say with you there is forgiveness so that you may be loved. That seems to make sense. Or, you know, we might change it a little bit and say, with you there is judgment so that you may be feared. That makes sense. But forgiveness and fear somehow doesn't go together. Or does it? It may seem strange, you know, but we even sing it in our songs. To us grace that taught my heart to... To what? To fear. All right? so that the fear that's mentioned in this psalm here cannot be a slavish, cannot be a cringing fear, since that would surely be decreased by forgiveness. So this fear must then be a different kind of fear. It must be understood as reverence. It must be understood as awe. And that's how different translations like the NIV and the NRSV render it. With you there is forgiveness so that we might worship you, so that we might serve you with reverence and awe. You see, when we are forgiven, the cringing, the paralyzing fear of facing God's judgment is replaced with a different kind of fear, a reverent fear. The servile fear of what God might do to me is replaced with the reverent fear of what I might do to God. The fear of what I might do, the fear of what I might do to dishonor Him to tarnish his name, to besmirch his honor. Thus, as we are forgiven, we reverence him, we serve him with all, for we are mindful that we cannot take sin lightly any longer. And we are reminded that we cannot receive forgiveness lightly. For if we do not respond in gratitude and godly fear of God, then we have not understood the immensity of our sin, nor have we understood the cost which God bore to forgive us. So in these two verses here, you know, we get a second movement of life, of faith, as it grapples with sin, and that faith affirms God's goodness against the black drop of humanity's sin. Now we come to the next part here, the next movement here, is that faith waits for the Lord. We see that in verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. We sang about it, we heard about it in, in the offertory song here just now. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning care. Now, in these two verses, the psalmist then puts his theology into practice. In verses 3 to 4, he affirms the truth. Now he applies the truth to his own life. And the one who fears the Lord with reverence and awe waits for the Lord, and he hopes in his word. Now, what is the psalmist waiting for? What is he hoping for here? He hopes here, you know, the first thing is that he places his hope in a word from the Lord. The word, what is this word that he is placing his hope on? The word here is probably a message of salvation from God that authoritatively authoritatively conveys, that is conveyed through the mouth of a priest that his sins have been forgiven. You know, just as the prophet Nathan says to King David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. So also the psalmist here is waiting for a word from the Lord that authoritatively considers and says that his sin has been forgiven. So here he hopes in God's word. He hopes in the assurance of forgiveness from God. But at the same time, he waits for the Lord. He is waiting for reconciliation He is waiting for a restored relationship with God. Here, the psalmist waits for the Lord more than the watchman of the morning. You know, watchmen here, they're supposed to guard the city at night. And they can't fall asleep. They long for the morning here because daybreak brings safety, safety from the darkness of danger. And and they know that in the morning, they will eventually come. They know the morning is going to come, but they still nonetheless have to wait. And compared to these watchmen here, the psalmist says that he's more eager than them. He can't just wait for it to happen. He can't just wait for the restoration that will come from the Lord. You know, for believers here, the word of salvation, which the psalmist is hoping for, that word has arrived 2,000 years ago. It has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Because on his death of Christ itself, his death on the cross is God's definitive word that salvation is now available to everyone who confesses their sin and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. So that no matter how guilty or how ashamed we might feel, Our acceptance by God does not turn on how we feel. It does not turn on how much good we've done today. Rather, it depends solely on the work of Christ. And that work of Christ is the sure foundation. It is the objective basis of our salvation. So no matter how guilty or ashamed we might be, our acceptance for God is assured. But if that is true, what do I do with what I feel? If that is true, what do I do with what I feel? With still my spiritual depression, with still my spiritual despondency, what do I do? He followed the advice of the psalmist here, where he says to call on and to wait on the Lord. And so we trust in the finished work of Christ and we wait for the Lord. We wait for a renewed relationship with God. How many of you like to wait? I don't like to wait. I hate waiting. I really do. You know, yesterday I went to uh, Xfinity Comcast, all right? I went there because, you know, the Olympics has already begun, right? and I went there to pick up an Xfinity Flex box so that I could watch the Olympics. You know, I got there just a couple of minutes after the store opened, just about two or three minutes after the store opened, and I still had to wait 45 minutes. (laughs) You know, they tell you, go browse around the store, so I browse around the store, then I sit down, then I get antsy, then I walk around the store around again, then I sit down and get antsy, then I see, Who's ahead of me? All right. Then at 20 minutes time, you know, I say, should I leave? You know, this is, this, I get frustrated. This is pointless here. I'm just wasting my time here. And as, as I sat there waiting, you know, this psalm came to me. And this psalm is telling us to wait on the Lord. I hate waiting because when I wait, I'm not in control. I'm dependent on others, and I don't like that. But this psalm here is telling us to wait. And it's the same with the Christian life here, that we are to wait on God. The psalmist tells us to wait for the Lord, to wait for God's presence to fill our hearts and minds, to wait for God's peace to settle within our hearts, to settle deep within our core, to experience the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And while I'm waiting, I'm getting antsy. I'm getting frustrated here. But as we wait for the Lord, we should wait knowing that it will come. As we wait for the Lord, we should wait knowing that it will come. You know, as I was waiting in the store at Comcast, I knew that I was going to get my chance to talk to the attendant, right? I knew that I, all it had to do was to just wait. So it is the same thing too, that as we wait, we know That it will come. As we wait for the intimate experience with God, we know that it will come one day, sooner or later. How can I know that? How can I be sure of that? Because that is our eschatological destiny. The intimate experience with God is the eschatological destiny of those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. That even though if we might not experience the intimate presence of God as fully as we like in this present life, we will experience it in full on the day that we see our Lord face to face. Now we see God dimly as through a mirror, but we will see him face to face one day. And so as we wait, we wait with assurance that it will definitely come. But as we wait for the Lord here, we wait patiently. We wait patiently. You know, I told you in the store I was getting frustrated, antsy, wondering why it was taking so long, and thinking that all of this was pointless, that I should just, you know, just go home. But I already waited for 20 minutes, right? I already waited for that long here. And so I was just to tell myself, learning to be patient. And in the same way, too, as we wait for the Lord let us not be frustrated. But let us persevere as we wait for the Lord. And as we wait for the Lord, let us pray, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that we will not only, that we will know not only intellectually, but experientially, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So faith, the life of faith here. Waits for the Lord. The life of faith waits for the Lord. Now the last stage here is that faith encourages others to hope, and let's take a look into the last two verses here. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Notice that in these two verses, who is the psalmist talking to? He's not talking to God, he's not talking to himself, but he's talking to others. There's this outward perspective. He exhorts others, he exhorts Israel to wait and to hope in the Lord. What made the change? What caused this to happen? Most likely, the psalmist here has found and experienced God's forgiveness at this point. And having experienced the reality of God's forgiveness, he then encourages others. He encourages Israel to put their hope in the Lord and to wait for him. And he gives two reasons here, all right, in terms of why they are to hope in the Lord and to wait. Firstly, is with God's steadfast love and with his plentiful redemption. With God's steadfast love, you know, there's an unfading love, undying love. This is the kind of steadfast love that never gives up. It's the same kind of love that caused the father in Jesus' parable, the prodigal son, to not give up on his wayward and rebellious son. And God's unfailing love provides the motivation. It provides the motivation for him to redeem us. But it goes on to say that with him is plentiful redemption here. Plentiful, abundant, complete redemption with the covenant God of Israel. The language of redemption here is used to describe the process whereby a slave is set free by the payment of a ransom. And to say that with God there is full, plentiful, and complete redemption means that he has the complete power to do it. He has the complete power to do it. So with his love that provides the motivation for him to redeem us and with his power to be able to accomplish that, what is there to prevent him from redeeming us in total? So with these two reasons, we have love and power that God has the love and the motivation to redeem us and he has the power and ability to redeem us. But not only that, it goes on to say here, he will redeem Israel. Not only does God have the motivation and power to fully redeem Israel, he himself will be the one to accomplish it. He's not going to send a gopher, he's not going to send a servant to do it, but he will personally ensure that it is done. He will personally do it. How? How has God redeemed his people? And we see this here, that God's redemption of his people is made complete in Christ Jesus, in that the man God, God in the flesh here, redeems his people from sin. And in 1 Peter, it goes on to say that you were ransomed, you were redeemed. And you are redeemed here with the precious blood of Christ. So when we read Psalm 130 in light of the New Testament, God's plan of redemption is fulfilled by Jesus, and he is the one on whom we set our hope. But not only that, the psalm here says that he will redeem Israel from all their sins, from all their iniquities. What the psalmist writes about here finds its fulfillment in Jesus Because the Old Testament sacrifices were never able, they were never able to cleanse a person fully. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Moreover, they were never able to clear the conscience, to clear the conscience of the worshiper. But the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross fulfills what the Old Testament pointed to that Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross is able to clear our conscience, to clear our hearts, so that we might serve the living God. So Jesus is able to t- take away all of our sins here. It's not that Jesus takes away the big sins, all right? And those small little sins, well, you just have to do enough good works so that you have to make up for all the little ones you do. No, Jesus takes care of all the sins, the big sins and the little sins. It's not that Jesus saves you from your past sins and then those in the present and the future, well, you just have to do enough. You just have to be good enough so that you don't sin anymore. No, Jesus saves us from our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins here. He saves us from all our sins. And this is what the book of Hebrews says. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to intercede for them. Even though Jesus' work on the cross is complete, it's finished, Jesus still has an ongoing ministry to do. He still has an ongoing ministry to do. Jesus is still now, right now, interceding to God on our behalf. Why? Why is Jesus still now interceding to God on our behalf? Because we still sin. We still sin. Even though we have professed faith in Christ's death, we still sin. And as we confess our sins and ask God for mercy and forgiveness again and again, Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, He is interceding on our behalf. He is interceding on our behalf. He advocates on our behalf he appeals to God for saving mercy based on what he has done on the cross and he does it again and again and again and as long as we sin he continues to do that and that's why that is why Jesus is able to save completely to save forever so Jesus is able to save us from our sins the big ones The medium ones and the tiny ones. The past, the present, and the future. And as He saves us from our sins, He purifies our guilty conscience, our shame tinged conscience, so that we might serve the living God with a pure heart. You know, if uh, some of y'all know people who have cancer, And if a cancer patient undergoes surgery, the surgeon will do their best to remove all of the cancer cells during surgery. But it's always possible to leave just one or two tiny cancer cells there. And these small groups of cancer cells can then multiply causing a relapse and causing the cancer to come back. So it's very important to get rid of all the cancer cells. But with God, He is the master surgeon that removes all the cancer cells of sin in us. And he gives us full and complete redemption from the cancer of sin that ravages our soul. So when we have personally experienced the forgiveness that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, when we have personally experienced that, let us turn our gaze towards others. Encourage them to wait and to hope in the Lord, just as you yourself have waited and hoped in the Lord. Now, in this psalm here, we said that there are four moments in the life of faith as you grapple with sin in the lives. That faith cries for mercy, faith affirms God's goodness, faith waits for the Lord, and then faith encourages others to hope. And together, these four movements here, that holds us to hope in the Lord, for he will redeem us from all our sins. Hope in the Lord, for he will redeem us from all our sins. Do you remember the missionary that I talked about in, in the beginning? The missionary that went to preach the gospel to native Indians eventually returned back to his home country. He subsequently experienced a genuine forgiveness of his sins and Psalm 130 played a pivotal role in that conversion. And that person is John Wesley. That person is John Wesley. On May 24, 1738, he went to St. Paul's Cathedral and the anthem that was sung was, was Psalm 130. And that psalm must have made an impact on him, for he wrote the entire words of the psalm in his diary. He wrote the entire words of the psalm in his diary, and this is what else he wrote in his diary for that day, for that day itself on May twenty-four. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans. About a quarter before nine while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Psalm one thirty laid the foundation for the spiritual awakening in John Wesley. And I pray that it will also do the same for you, that your heart will be strangely warmed and that you would have the assurance that God has indeed taken away your sins. Therefore hope, hope in the Lord, for he will redeem us from all our sins. Let us pray. O oh Lord, if you do mark our iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be reverenced, so that we may behold you with all. O oh Lord, help us to wait on you. Help us to hope in the word of salvation that has come into our lord jesus christ amen in response to what we've learned and reflected on with dr lau in psalm 130 today we are going to respond with a corporate